The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. I was reading this morning uh, on the internet, actually it was on Dr. Plummer's Twitter feed, uh, and it was a, uh, yeah, it's a must read, um, about, about a church that is, um, I suppose, celebrating Easter because their big attraction is they're going to drop Easter eggs from a helicopter this coming Sunday. I don't know whether that sounds fun to you. Uh, it doesn't sound fun to me, but I suppose it might have some appeal, but it's relatively, it's trivial, isn't it? It's a, it's a distraction. It trivializes something that is of vital importance. Oftentimes, I think in our, uh, our circles, we can also just wallow in uh, sentimentalism in a week like this. And, and there, there's a place for that. There's a place, I think, for uh, understanding and emotionally being extremely moved. Certainly, certainly the earliest apostles were deeply moved at uh, the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection, and we ought to be as well. But... Mere sentimentality isn't really the note that gets struck throughout the New Testament. In fact, what we see in the New Testament is deep reflection on the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. In a sense, what we see is doctrinal reflection. And so in that spirit, I want to turn your attention this Monday to Hebrews chapter 10. Open your Bibles, please. Take them out, open them. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18 of Hebrews 10, and then we'll uh, ask the Lord's blessing once again. I want to pray again after I read, but I want to read this text, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 18, Hebrews 10, 1 to 18. And remember, as I, as I read here and as you follow along, this is the Word of God. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, 
sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and, upon, and on their mind, I will write them. Then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Amen. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. We are in your debt. In you we live and move and have our being. Every good and perfect gift comes from you, our unchanging Father of lights. We thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in and through it. We thank you for revealing your Son, our Savior, in and through your word. We thank you for the ministry of your Spirit who works through your word even now in gatherings like this. And we ask that you, by your Spirit, would work through your word, would convict us of sin, would show us in greater measure the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, would transform our thinking more and more into his image. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that you can't miss if you look through the pages of Scripture, really it confronts you right in the very first chapters of the Bible, is that how we approach God in worship matters. Uh, you see in Genesis chapter 4, uh, this story of Cain and Abel and we don't know all that went on there, all the dynamics at work between the two of them, but we do know that, in a sense, the, the, the cause of Cain's initial jealousy against Abel, as the text records it, is that God was not pleased with Cain's offering, with Cain's exercise of public worship, but he was pleased with Abel's. And if you keep reading through the Scriptures, you see this theme played out even more, it's a very significant theme in the, the life of Israel. In fact, you've probably noticed this on day one of the tabernacle. Day one, when the tabernacle gets built, this, this culminating event that the Exodus has been sort of pointing us forward to, on day one, when the priests walk into the temple, their names were Nadab and Abihu, it says they offered strange fire before the Lord and they were struck down and killed. And so there's this seriousness and almost severity about how God is approached in worship. And there are many reasons for this, of course. One reason is because God demands obedience to His Word. And God is a holy God and He has told us things about Himself, things about our approach of Him, and He demands that we obey His Word. But, you know, there's something else going on there as well, because what we see throughout the Scriptures is not only does God demand obedience, and therefore He has to be worshipped in the way that He tells us to worship Him, but also our worship, our public worship, reflects truths about God. And it's designed in certain ways to reflect certain truths about God. Very important, serious business, this public 
approach to God. And what the writer to Hebrews does in this chapter is he actually looks back at the divinely appointed public worship of the people of Israel. So this isn't them being disobedient. This is how the whole thing was structured. And what he says is that even at its very best, even when it was done according to the pattern laid on in Scripture, even when people were obeying the laws that, that God gave them, that those laws and that worship was really just a shadow pointing us forward to something greater. Look at how he begins in verse 1 of this chapter. The law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near to God. You see, there are some key elements of this Old Testament worship that we actually see in the Old Testament and that the writer to Hebrews brings out for us in case we miss them in the Old Testament. That these sacrifices that are repeated, this worship that's repeated by those who are drawing near to God, according to verse 1, this worship that's repeated is never going to remove sin and it's never going to make perfect those who draw near. Now, why is that? Well, there are several reasons that are given to us in the Old Testament. First of all, what we see in the Old Testament is that the sacrificial system never, never claimed to do that. In fact, if you look carefully at Leviticus, and you look at the sin offerings, and you look at the Day of Atonement, there's this little phrase that gets repeated over and over again. Let me read the beginning of these sin offerings in Leviticus chapter 4 to you. In Leviticus 4, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, then it gives the sacrifices. Now you see, there's a, there's a kind of problem built into that. Because what the law actually says is that the sacrifices offered in worship by these ancient Israelites were only designed for these sins committed unintentionally. So right there, you see there's this whole huge category of sin that's not even addressed in the Levitical system. That is, sins that are committed intentionally. It's just these unintentional sins that are dealt with. So already, when you go and offer your sacrifice and worship in the Old Testament, already you're realizing that this points to something more. Because at best, all this is doing is dealing with my unintentional sins. But then there's more, of course, because what he says here in Hebrews is that if that wasn't clear enough, you can see the shadowy nature of this whole system because you have to keep doing it over and over and over again. Look at what he says in verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But the way it works is, day by day, month by month, as you become more aware of sins, as sins are brought to your attention, unintentional sins, mind you, there's not a category of sacrifice for anything else, but these unintentional sins, you realize that you have to keep going back over and over and over again in obedience to the law. And even on that Day of Atonement, where the priest offered a sacrifice for the 
sins of the people committed in ignorance that have been missed. He has to do that year after year after year. So the repetition is a reminder of the indwelling sin in the people. It's a reminder that they haven't been fully transformed and that these sacrifices aren't dealing with the root problem. If you kind of want to think of it this way, perhaps this might help. I, my, uh, my oldest brother had a uh, heart transplant surgery in the fall. Some of you know this. I've asked for prayer from some of you for this. But he had this heart transplant surgery, and it went, it went well, but he's had some complications in the last two months. And one of the complications is that he has this, this uh, tremendous pain in his throat and these sores in his throat, and the doctors can't figure out why. It makes it hard for him to swallow. It makes it impossible for him to talk. He's very fatigued. He's in tremendous, tremendous pain. Now, what the doctors have done is they don't know exactly what's causing it. So they've given him some kind of uh, thing that he can drink that, that soothes the pain slightly for maybe an hour or two. But, you know, there's a problem with that, and the problem is it's not actually getting to the root of the issue. And it helps a little bit. It gives some relief, but he is acutely aware, as anyone who would see him would be acutely aware, that this treatment doesn't actually address the core issue. And the writer to Hebrews says, you see, the sacrificial system is similar to that. It never addresses these core issues. And in fact, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But then, then we get verses 5 through 7. And in verses 5 through 7, the writer to Hebrews quotes from Psalm 40. And he actually says that the Messiah, Christ, himself was speaking Psalm 40. And when you read verses 5 through 7, it should feel to you like you're in the midst of a dark room and all of a sudden the lights go on. Because he moves from this description of these shadowy systems and he moves to the sufficient sacrifice of Christ once for all. Look at what Christ said in the words of the psalmist. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you've taken no pleasure but then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Now you see what's happening here. Is what he's saying is that Christ, because he has a willing body in the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, assumes a human nature and a human body, and it says that when he assumes this nature and this body, he says, Behold, I have come to do your will because sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. You see here that this is giving us a picture of the scope of Jesus' life and his death. It's describing for us 
the obedient life that Jesus lived and the sacrificial death that he died. Remember how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 5? For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, speaking of Adam, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And you know, when he says, behold, I have come to do your will in verse 7, quoting from the psalm, we might tie this in with other things that we heard our Lord say in the Gospels. Remember when he's praying to the Father in John's Gospel? And he says, glorify yourself. I have come to do what you have commanded. I've come to obey you. Or remember in Luke 9, at that turning point in the, in the Gospel of Luke, where it says, he set his face toward Jerusalem. See, Jesus did all this. He did it willingly in obedience to the Father's will. And because of his obedience, Paul says, the many will be made righteous. It's not just that Jesus' death offers forgiveness of sins for those who come to him in faith, although it does that, and the writer to Hebrews is going to explore that in a minute. It's also that his life of obedience offers righteousness to those who are united to him through faith. You also see that it's a fulfillment of prophecy. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Jesus' whole life was lived in obedience to God, and his whole life was an outworking of these prophetic words given by God hundreds of years before. But look at the effect of all of this. The effect of all of this in verses 8 and 9 is that because of this one sacrifice, he says, he takes away the first in order to establish the second in verse 9. In other words, because of his sacrifice, any of the provisional effects of this earlier system of worship are done away with. And then look at verse 10. What a powerful verse this is. This might be a verse that you should meditate on this week if you're a Christian. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Look at verse 14 and how verse 14 picks up on the same, same language. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. It's really almost unimaginable, the contrast here. The many sacrifices offered daily for unintentional sins that can never fully deal with them in a final way and frankly are only provisional anyway. And the once for all sacrifice that perfects for all time those who are being sanctified. That's what the death of Christ means, doctrinally speaking, in the New Testament. Oh, it's true, we should, we should feel all kinds of sentiment when we think about Christ hanging on the cross and the pain that was endured by Him. But this, this teaching, 
is what turned upside down the world. This teaching is what transformed the apostles. This is the teaching on which the church was founded. That by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. No re-sacrificing of Christ. No need after death to purify yourself. Make yourself fit for heaven. No, no, by one offering, He is perfected for all time. And you know, he unpacks this a little bit more in the previous verses, in verses 11 through 14. And it's a vivid image, actually, in verses 11 through 14. I think it really plays on our imagination because we can sort of see what he's describing. And I think it, it actually is a fitting illustration for everything he's saying in verse 10 and then in verse 15. What he does is this, beginning in verse 11, is he describes what the life of the priest was like. And what he says in the beginning in verse 11 is, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Now, this is actually imagery that we use today. Oftentimes, you'll be talking to someone or maybe uh, someone will ask you how your day was at work and you'll say, I was so busy. I never, I was on my feet the whole day. I never had a chance to sit down. Someone will say, how was your day? And you'll say, I don't know, I haven't even had a chance to, to take a breath. I've just been running around from one thing to the next. And that's the way we describe this kind of frenetic busyness that we sometimes experience. And that's the picture he gives of the priests in the Old Testament. They're on their feet all day. They never get a chance to sit down. They're standing all the time, going from one offering to the next offering. One ritual of purification to the next ritual of purification. And it's all good and proper. This is how God has designed it. But the writer says, now compare that to what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're there, standing, running around, one thing to another, time after time, offering sacrifices that can never actually take away sins. Verse 12, but He having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. It's as if there's a kind of exhaling that takes place between verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 is a picture of frenetic busyness and a kind of futility. Verse 12 is a finished work where he's now seated at the right hand of God. And he's seated because his work of salvation, his work of atonement, is completed. And our salvation is accomplished in him. And so he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, having finished the work. So that's why he echoes again in verse 14, by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now to wrap up the argument 
The writer to Hebrews then goes on and gives another text from the Old Testament. This time it's not from the sacrificial system. This time it's from a promise made in Jeremiah, this promise of the new covenant. And he quotes from it in, beginning in verse 16. And he says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws on their heart and on their mind I will write them. And then he says, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, it's appropriate in the, in the context of this passage that he ends with this. And the reason why it's appropriate is because at the beginning, if you notice the sort of structure of this passage, at the beginning of it, he talks about the provisions of the Old Covenant. And what he says about the provisions of the Old Covenant are a few things. He says, first of all, they never really deal with the internal problem. And they're not designed to. They never made a claim to deal with the internal problem. They were always meant to be a pointer to those who were seeking after the Lord. But, but nonetheless, they, they don't deal with that internal problem. And then the other, the other difficulty is they actually just remind you over and over again of the fact that you're a sinner because you have to offer these sacrifices day by day. And do you see how he bookends that with this, this quote from Jeremiah? Because what he says about this new covenant is it does actually address the internal issue. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, I will write them. The promise that God makes to his people is a promise of inward transformation. That it's not simply a penalty that is dealt with. It's actually a person who's changed on the inside by the work of the Holy Spirit. And these things can never be pulled apart. There's no such thing as the penalty having been paid, but the person not being transformed. It's a triune work of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. And then do you see the next thing that he deals with in this bookend? Quotation from Jeremiah. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. What a contrast to the beginning of the chapter. We all have relationships, maybe relationships within our families, maybe relationships with other friends. And we have these people in our lives who, who will never let us forget those things that we have done wrong. They'll never let us forget bad decisions we made, ways we hurt them, ways we disappointed other people. They'll never let us forget our sins. And, and we have to deal with that relationally. We have to sort of figure that out. But the, the, the thing that he says at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 10 is actually the sacrificial system kind of did that. It kind of reminded you over and over again that you're a sinner. But do you see the contrast between verse 3, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. That reminder. And then do you see the contrast in verse 17? What God says, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. It's not just that Christ's work is designed in such a way and carried out in such a way so that it doesn't remind us of our sins day by day. But it's that because of God's work in Christ, 
on behalf of his sheep, he says, I will remember their sins no more. Full forgiveness by God. Transformation from the inside. This is the significance of the cross of Jesus Christ. No more offerings for sin, he says in verse 18. And in a sense, that's obvious when you get to the end of verse 17. But you know, the fact that there are no more offerings for sin, according to verse 18, really means that the cross forces us to reconceive our relationship to God. Some of you are laboring under the delusion that you must do something before a holy God in order to in some way make up and atone for your sin. And of course, what the Bible says is, in one sense, that is a burden you don't need to bear. And in another sense, by even trying to bear it, you are, you are grossly underestimating the nature of the problem. Because you don't just need a payment for sin. And even if you did, you couldn't pay it. You also need total transformation. Remember what Paul says to the Galatians who were going down this road in terms of circumcision? He says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no value to you. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Entirely changes the way we look at God and our relationship with Him and our standing with Him. But in addition, if you know this forgiveness and this transformation, if you're a Christian, then these truths ought to provoke in you unparalleled gratitude to God. Because you couldn't transform yourself and you couldn't possibly offer the sacrifice that needed to be offered, but a body you have prepared for me, the Lord Jesus Christ says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. If you're burdened this morning by ways in which you have sinned, you've hurt other people, you've hurt yourself, you don't seem to change, you can't seem to change. You do things you wish you hadn't done. You don't do things you know you should do. What this says as well is that God can give you a new heart. And God promises to those who come to the Lord Jesus Christ full forgiveness, sanctification, and that He will remember your sins no more. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this good news. This is surely the best news we will hear this week. Surely the best news we could hear. So, Father, impress this good news on our hearts, even now, particularly as we reflect on the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him, and we thank you in his name. Amen. You're dismissed.